bless us out of 1st Timothy chapter 3 1st Timothy chapter 3 to give you just a little bit of of, of uh, insight to this epistle this is the letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy and the purpose of Timothy is referred to as a younger minister uh, the Apostle Paul might be considered or would be considered Timothy's, quote, father in the ministry. Uh, he took Timothy under his wing and he uh, encouraged him. He taught him. He instructed him. He was there uh, when Timothy uh, needed some encouragement and some direction. And we can even sense that in the letter that Paul writes to Timothy. And Paul uh, acknowledges his uh, heartfelt appreciation the uh, kinship, the, the knitting of the hearts that the Lord did between Timothy and Paul. And Paul says in 2 Timothy, he, he sort of gives uh, Timothy a, li a, a little bit of insight here. He says, Timothy, he says in uh, chapter 4, he says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Uh, it's interesting how that the Lord gives different ones impressions and especially older ministers. I remember Elder Compton when uh, he was nearing the end of his ministry. He was 102 at the time and he was still preaching. He was still able to travel and, and preach. And I remember that uh, looking back upon it, that the weeks or months before his passing, there was an added urgency to his uh, ministry and to his message. He had, a, he had a message to get out and he had uh, an urgency to do it as well. I remember uh, Brother Kilby, your dad, uh, in his latter years when he was preaching and you could just sense that urgency that there was, um, uh, it was very urgent that he uh, get the message out. And we can sense that with Paul here as he writes this letter from prison to Timothy and he just comes out and he says, Timothy, he says, I, I'm, I'm ready to go and be with the Lord. In fact, one place uh, Paul said, he said, I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But he says, it's more needful for you that I'm still here in first in Philippians chapter one. But Paul says, I'm now ready to be offered. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. Didn't mean right that day, but it did, did mean that he was in the season of finishing his influence and ministry. And he says, he's basically saying, Timothy, I want to encourage you to entrust the truths that you have been given, that God has given you. And I want you to hold fast to those truths. And Timothy, I also want you to look out and find other men, other young men, to teach these truths to, 
so that they'll continue on and on and on again. And that's how God sets it up in his church. If there's not a new generation that comes on, if there's not another group of folks that come on the scene, ultimately after two or three generations, you'll see the church doors close. And it's, it's a sad situation when that's the case. But when God is merciful to bless with with new people coming, new families, young children, the instruction is given from Paul to Timothy to teach the very same truths that you've been taught. In fact, he says, Timothy, the truths that I share with you that are important to you, you first heard those truths from your mother and you also heard those truths from your grandmother. He said, you've been blessed with a godly mother, a godly grandmother, and you've been taught these uh, in First in Timothy, in Second Timothy, chapter one. He says, when I recall, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, you, you know, it, it's noticeable and it's special when you witness and you can see. And you have the kinship. We sing the song kindred in Christ for his dear sake. When you can witness and experience that kinship that you have in Christ. And that's how Paul is addressing Timothy right here. He says, Timothy, I remember the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which first dwelt in your grandmother, Lois, and in thy mother, uh, Eunice. And he says, and I'm persuaded about something. I'm persuaded that it's in you as well. And he talks about what a blessing that is to have this faith that God has blessed Timothy with. He says, wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And he says, Timothy, he says in one place, uh, he says, uh, not be uh, a novice. Here he says, Timothy, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be afraid or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But he says, Timothy, be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And then Paul is encouraging Timothy to hold dear and hold precious these truths that he has. And then he says... But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath brought death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul is preparing Timothy right here to treasure this gospel that he's been given. And he says, the he says in, in uh, verse 10, he says, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light. Timothy, you're going to be able to take the gospel and go around to other folks, not to give life, but to shed light on the life that individuals have. 
That's the purpose of the gospel message. The gospel message is to teach others about Jesus Christ. You can't teach somebody to know the Lord. Only the Lord can do that. And God is sovereign when he chooses to do that. You can go over to Hebrews chapter 8. And he clearly tells us right here that we are not to teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. He says, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. And he tells us that the way that we know him, he says, I will write my laws in their hearts and in their minds. And I will be to them a God and they shall be. It doesn't say might be or he hopes that they'll be or if they will follow me or they will accept me. He says, I will be their God and, and they shall be my people. He's the one that writes it in the heart and in the mind. And he's successful 100% of the time. So it's not left up to us. And he's saying, Timothy, this gospel that you have is not to give life, but it's to give light on the life that individuals have. And Timothy, you hold this gospel dear. And then Timothy, you also take this gospel and you share it with other men that can also in turn pass it on. And that's what this is about. The purpose of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy right here is for the continuity of the church of Jesus Christ to strengthen the church. Paul says, I'm about off the scene. He says, I've about finished my course. In fact, he says it this way. I like how he says this. He says, the time I'm now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. He says, I fought a good fight, Timothy. He says, I I finished my course. And he says, I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all of them that love his appearing. So Paul is encouraging Timothy here as he as he begins to wrap up and finish his ministry. He tells Timothy, he says, here's some things that you need to put in place. You need to go into cities and you need to ordain ministers and you need to ordain deacons for the consistency and the continuity of the church of Jesus Christ. And so as you're doing this, here's some things that you're to consider and that you're to teach others in this process. He doesn't just say, go ordain some ministers and go ordain some deacons, run an ad in the paper or put something online and apply for uh, ministers and deacons to come and apply that way. He says, you look out from among you. That means folks that already have uh, an appreciation, a knowledge and an appreciation for the things of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let's go over to, we'll continue on in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's, it's, uh, it's real good right here. I, I, we looked at, and we're going to look at just a little bit more, um, uh, the responsibilities, the qualifications of the role of a deacon. Brother Kilby will second this. Uh, now Brother Kilby has a chauffeur. I saw Brother David pull up in the, in the driveway with Brother Kilby, and, and he's got a chauffeur. Uh, Brother Kilby and I are 
all in favor of looking out among us and ordaining some more deacons. I believe that we've done it, uh, gone through the ordination process three times in the last 30 years. And it's been a blessing every time. And Brother Kilby has served with three generations of deacons, maybe four here at Mount Carmel. What a great blessing that is. Brother Kilby and I are all in favor of more deacons. Mount Carmel, I'll just share with you, Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel has been here since the early 1930s, I believe 1934. Mount Carmel has, through the years, uh, been used to uh, continue to meet at this place uh, throughout the years, with the exception of this last summer when we met at the Old Brick Church. For years, for many years, Elder Thompson, who pastored here, Susan's grandfather, Elder Thompson, who pastored here, he also ministered at the Old Brick Church. He ministered up at the London Track Church in Pennsylvania, and he would go down often on fifth weekends to Luray, Virginia. He ministered down in Luray. Um, if you've, you've driven down 81, you've seen the sign to Luray Caverns in that area, a beautiful little town, a beautiful uh, church building down there. He also went down into North Carolina and ministered down there as well. For many years, Elder Tillman pastored here and pastored at the Old Brick Church and Sister Anita has been a faithful member at the Old Brick Church. She's now here at Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is very much involved in maintaining the responsibility of the Old Brick Church at this time. Mount Carmel is also involved in helping with Columbia Church. Um, a couple of years ago, um, several of the folks had passed away. Many of the folks, some of you have attended there through the years. And um, I received some documents in the mail that it looked like that uh, I'm familiar with the county, very much familiar with Montgomery County, and Brother Phil is as well, that because some documents had not been filled out on, a, on an annual basis, that the church was just about to be taken over by a, a government uh, authority. And I met with Brother Phil. We went through uh, what was necessary to fill out and bring up to date the, the documents so that the Columbia Church uh, would not be um, taken over by a government entity. I don't know what would have happened. Maybe it would have been sold. I'm not sure what would have taken place with it. But I feel like that we not only have the opportunity, I feel like we have the obligation if we're able to help these other little churches. Brother Phil helped uh, the church in um, uh, uh, Baltimore uh, off of, uh, in Rosedale. Uh, Brother Phil and Sister Marcia, that, that group had also come into a situation that they had some needs. And Brother Phil and Sister Marcia helped keep that from, from being turned over to a government entity. The church at Columbia was started in 1792. The building is still there and they still meet. Very small, very faithful group, primarily older folks. George Washington was the president when that church was established there in Columbia, Maryland. It's, it's one of the closest churches to 
to Washington, D.C., to the Capitol and to the White House. And I personally believe that it's not only a great opportunity for us to try to help and encourage those folks, but I believe it's also a responsibility that we have as well. The old brick church, the building, the church is the body, and we've, we, we know full well that the church is the body. It's not the building. But the building does represent something. Those that are buried in the cemetery, some of them gave their lives for the freedoms that we have and for the ability to be able to meet freely. And the Old Brick Church uh, has been there since the early 1700s. The church was organized in the early 1700s. The building may be in the early 1800s. But meeting in that location for, for almost 300 years, there's just probably not any place else in the United States of America that you can go where there's such a rich history among a group of believers of what we believe is the apostles doctrine you can drive up north on interstate 95 about 30 miles and the very first uh, primitive baptist church the Welstrack primitive baptist church is still there and it's been meeting consistently for over 300 years started in 1698 the original minutes were written in the Welsh language. Uh, the history of the church is in the Welsh language way back in that time frame. Those are buildings, but they represent something. They represent a place where Jesus chose to dwell for the gospel to be proclaimed for God's people to be fed for families to come together and worship the Lord. And when we see those buildings, we should see not only and appreciate the history of those buildings. You look in the cemetery, rich history that's there. But I believe that it should represent what we believe today. And I believe that we should pray as in Lamentations chapter 5, where... Jeremiah said, renew our days as of old. Turn us unto thee again, O Lord, and renew our days as of old. Let me just touch on this. I believe we should do everything that we can within our power to keep those landmarks under the influence of people that believe the doctrines of grace, share some personal experience. Up in New Jersey, up in Pennsylvania, there's two beautiful, beautiful buildings up there. The old Hopewell Meeting House, the old Southampton Meeting House. They're large. In their day, they would hold three and 400 people. The members began to pass away. And then trustees were appointed from the community. That the only interest that the trustees had for those buildings was to maintain the physical aspect of the building. We took groups up there 
to hold services. And occasionally we were granted permission to do it. And I've thought in my mind, and sometimes not, sometimes new regulations fall into place with the fire marshal, the fire code, and they implement those. But I've thought many times that those buildings, and that's in New Jersey, that's in Pennsylvania, it's in upstate New York, the buildings that were built with brothers and sisters that put their heart and soul and their commitment into it, that raised their families and their children and their grandchildren, that it's a terrible shame that those buildings can't be used for worship services again in the day in which we live. And I believe that we should do everything that if God blesses us with the ability to keep the buildings under the influence of those that believe and appreciate the, not only Jesus Christ, especially Jesus Christ, but the doctrines of the grace of Almighty God. There is a difference in what you believe. There is. If, if you believe that Jesus Christ paid the price and he paid it in full without the assistance of man whatsoever, you believe the apostles' doctrine. If you believe that Jesus did, made a, a substantial down payment for your sin, but you have to help him out or you have to pay something on your sin, or you have to do something, or you have to at least accept him or what he's done for you, then that's not what the apostles' doctrine is. Therefore, I believe that if we have the opportunity, we should, we should seize the moment and, and do everything we can to maintain the influence of these buildings and it just might be that God might revive the old waste places. Now, we saw a little bit of that, and you were actually a big part of that this summer. In my mind, there's just not anything good that came out of COVID. I mean, just nothing that in my life, except that we started meeting at Old Brick. And that was just absolutely wonderful. I mean, it seemed like that God just poured out his blessings in a special way. We raised those windows. We opened those doors. You could hear the birds singing outside. What a beautiful, beautiful setting. That should be our desire for all the old waste places. That God would revive them again. Well, Paul is telling Timothy right here. He says, Timothy, I want you to go and I want you to ordain ministers and I want you to ordain deacons. And this is how he says it. I want you to set the church in order. In fact, he uses an old term that my grandmother used to use. He said, so that you'll know how to 
behave in the church of God. My, my grandmother would remind us on how we should behave when we went to church. Paul uses that with Timothy. Let me mention a couple more things here. A deacon wears a whole lot of different hats. He does. Stephen was referred to as a deacon. And Stephen actually was able to deliver a message and share the gospel. Primitive Baptists don't have uh, a long list of backup ministers. Hope we do. Some churches have multiple ministers, two or three, and that's a great blessing when they do. But if something happens to the pastor, if the pastor becomes ill or unable to be there, the deacons should know enough about the doctrine that they can actually get up and hold services and exhort the Lord's people, encourage the Lord's people, that they're that they believe the doctrine, that it's special to them, and that they're able to stand and read God's word and encourage the Lord's people in the midst of a minister not being there. A deacon also has a tremendous responsibility, Paul says, in raising their children, in directing their home in setting an example. Other folks look at the deacons. They look at their life. And what Paul is saying right here is that the life should match the responsibility and the role. And that a deacon should not be a distraction to others, especially the young. Anybody, but especially the young deacons ought to be they ought to be the uh, the first ones at church and just be very practical on it they should it should mean so much to them that they are excited about being there and serving the Lord and encouraging the Lord's people they ought to be some of the first ones there through the years, we've been blessed with wonderful deacons here at Mount Carmel. There was a time that I went through a real season of discouragement. And I'll tell you, it was a great encouragement to have deacons to encourage at that time. I'll always be thankful for that. The example that we have of deacons and ministers, as far as the role of deacons and ministers, is a great example of Aaron and her and Moses when the children of Israel were being overtaken by the Amalekites. And it says that as long as Moses was able to hold up the rod of God and the Israelites could look up and see the rod of God as Moses was holding it up, they were strengthened. They were encouraged. They said, we can overtake the enemy. We are strong in the Lord. But it says that Moses was old, Moses' hands became weary, and his hands became tired. And it says that 
the arms of Moses begin to get tired and weary and they begin to go down. And it said when his hands went down and they couldn't see the rod of God, that the Israelites became faint in spirit and they were ready to give up and the enemy was ready to take over. And so Aaron and her witnessed Moses and the weariness of Moses. They witnessed the situation and Aaron and her came and got on each side of Moses, Aaron on one side, her on the other side. And the two of them held up the arms of Moses. And when they held up the arms of Moses, then all of a sudden the Israelites were strengthened and they could overcome the enemy, the Amalekites. I think that's a wonderful picture of the role of the pastor and the deacons working together for the good of everybody, for the good of the Israelites. Moses and Aaron and Hur saw the need. They saw the situation. They saw the need and they wanted to be used of God to make a difference. We've got some really wonderful, fine young men here. They're doing a great job raising their families. They're doing a wonderful job. We need to pray that God will put it in the heart of these young men. If it's of God, that he'll put it in the heart of these young men to fulfill this role. It's a long role, but it's a wonderful blessing and a wonderful responsibility. And it says that if you desire it, it is as God says, as he refers to it, as Paul says it, he says it is a good work. It's a good work. When you're helping the Lord's people, when you're encouraging the Lord's people, when you're being used by God to help the Lord's people, it's a good work. All right, let's let's look. We'll, we'll just continue on with chapter three. Real good um, instructions right here. He says, um, moreover, he says, uh, verse eight, likewise, must the deacons be grave? We've we've touched on a good bit of this. We'll 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 come down to where we ended last week. The deacons must be grave, not double tongued, not given to much wine. We looked at that last week and and commented on that. Not greedy, a filthy lucre. Looked at that. They're going to be in charge and handling the funds of the church. They're going to be ministering to the poor. It says, holding the mystery of faith in pure conscience. Now, this one is, it's, uh, there's a lot said there. What does that actually mean? The mystery of faith. It's a lot of mysteries of faith. You believe in heaven, but you've not seen heaven. Yet God has given you the faith to believe that there is a heaven. Brother Phil, when he prayed and he closed his prayer, he mentioned in his prayer, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Trinity. We believe that there are three that bear record in heaven. Can you explain it? I can't. It's a mystery that God dwells in all three. And yet all three are one. We believe that Jesus Christ died upon the cross of Calvary. And there's something in us that causes us to believe that when he died upon the cross of Calvary, that he represented us. Were we there? 
not in person, then why do we believe that? God's given us faith to believe that he did. We believe that Jesus Christ rose again on the third day. I don't believe there's anybody here that would dispute that or doubt it. We can't prove it from a logical standpoint, but we believe it. We believe God's word, and when God's word says it, we believe his word, but not any of us were there. There were witnesses that to the empty tomb, but we believe it. We hold those mysteries in the faith that God gives us. But he says that we're to hold these mysteries in a pure conscience. Let me say this. If there's someone that is being considered as a deacon and they don't embrace these beliefs or don't embrace the truths, they shouldn't fulfill that role. They shouldn't. I was about mm, maybe 17, 18, I guess. When there was a family in our church and in Lubbock that uh, I'd just come to the understanding of the doctrines of grace and it was really special to me and it just made so much sense. I remember thinking that uh, it was so clear. It's as clear as two and two is four. It's not three. It's not five. It's just as clear as it can be that it's just, it was just so clear. And I remember that there was a Deacon and his family that became that began to be unsettled about the doctrine. And pretty soon they found another place and they uh, withdrew fellowship from the church and moved their family to this other this other denomination. And I remember as a 17 year old who was just coming to the understanding of the doctrines of grace and the appreciation for the doctrines of grace. This was actually the, 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 the father was actually the son of a minister of a primitive Baptist minister, not a minister of our church, but one of the nearby churches. And I remember how it just confused me. I thought, where are you going to go? Where can you find the truth being proclaimed. I'm not saying this is the only place that God dwells. But we're supposed to worship God in spirit and in truth. We're dependent upon God to bless us with his spirit. And we're to search him and worship him in truth. And if you have a place that the spirit dwells and the truth is proclaimed, then where are you going to go? It confused me. It did. Was very perplexed. He says that we're to hold the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. That's not to say that we've got every single thing figured out. But it is to say that the fundamental truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we hold those precious and dear. We don't always have to see every single scripture the same. We don't have to agree with every single verse, but the principal verses and the principal truths that are taught in God's word, we're to hold to and we're to embrace. And he says, this is important for the ministers and it's important for the deacons. Let me just ask you, 
I came to church next Sunday and I said, you know what? I'm not sure if sovereign grace is really it. I think I might have made a mistake. And I believe that there are some things we need to do to help the Lord out. I love you folks, but I really believe I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be welcome here in the pulpit and I shouldn't be if I'm bringing something that doesn't bear witness with God's word. It also is the same with the deacons. It is. All right. He says, uh, he says, let them. Okay. Then he says, and let these also be, be first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Okay. Let me mention this. Uh, in our home church in Lubbock, our pastor, one of my best friends, wonderful, wonderful pastor. He taught and we knew that one of the responsibilities of the deacon was to visit the sick. We had seven deacons at our church in Lubbock. And once a month, he would pair up two of the deacons. And that month, it would be their responsibility to go around and visit the sick. And it was not only to visit the sick within the congregation, but if there were any family members of folks that were sick, they would do that as well. I remember when my stepfather was in the hospital. He's not primitive Baptist, but when he was in the hospital at Johns Hopkins, brother Don Malcolm, who was at the time, he was a deacon here, on a walker, drove himself to Johns Hopkins, and on his walker, he went up and visited my stepfather and had prayer with him. That meant the world to my stepfather. It touched him in a special way. The role of deacons is to know the needs and to minister to the needs within the congregation. We lived in Lubbock, and there were a whole bunch of little towns around, Littlefield, Leveland, Brownfield, Plainview, all the little towns around. But Lubbock was the hub for the hospitals. There were four right there close together. And so there was almost always somebody in the hospital, even from the other little towns around. And so two deacons would pair up. They would oftentimes meet. They'd sometimes go out and have lunch or they might go have breakfast and they'd spend a couple hours going from hospital to hospital, visiting the sick and having prayer with them. They were not only ministering to the needs of the congregation, but they were also helping the pastor. The pastor would have prayer with them. He would visit with them as often as he could. But there might be 30 people in the hospitals around that would need to be visited or different family members. And they would go and do that. Another thing that they did that was really special is they looked out among the congregation and they looked at the widows. The scripture is very clear to meet the needs of the widows. Now, back when this was written, there weren't a lot of the social programs that they have today. And so some of the needs financially are being met that maybe were not being met if folks didn't have children. It says in the scripture that the first role of responsibility is with the children. And then he says it's with the church, but it can be both. And so the role of the deacons was to look at the needs of the church and recognize the needs of the widows and then meet those needs. And it doesn't mean that they have to bring attention to those needs. It does not. Oftentimes, there's a need 
that can be met that doesn't have to be announced to everybody else. It can just be met. I've known different sisters. I remember old sister Dolan. Poor old sister. She lived to be almost 100 years old, 99 years old. She buried all three of her children. She started burying her grandchildren. She went through a lot of sorrow. But that old sister, she wanted to be used of the Lord to encourage and help other people. And I'd go visit somebody. And old sister Dolan had already been there and taken them a pecan pie or a cobbler or a casserole. It was amazing how that she wanted to be used of the Lord to help and encourage other people. And if you'd have looked at her, she wasn't in any position to be able to help somebody else. But she took what she had and she used it to help somebody else. Well, the deacons oftentimes have the opportunity to know a need and meet that need and address that need. And then it's a blessing for the church and it's a blessing for the individual. And then God somehow blesses the deacon as well. Now, he says, let them first be proved and let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. It does not mean what it does not mean is that they're sinless. But what it does mean is that there's not a a, a chargeable sin that they're known for in their life. It doesn't mean that they're sinless. Not anybody. If we did that, there wouldn't be any deacons. There wouldn't be any preachers. That's not what you're looking for. Then he says, and he says that they first must have proved it. It just simply means that I'm going to chase another rabbit here. Forgive me. Uh, What he says right here is that you first do some of these things before you're ordained as a deacon. One of the things that, one of the elements that I was taught at a very early age by example and by expectation was the necessity and the responsibility of a four-letter word, work. A lot of young folks today have not been taught from an early age to work. I remember one of my first responsibilities in the house. I was probably five or six years old was just simply to empty all the trash. And I received a dime a week for doing it. Mom taught us that there was some compensation for what you do. A lot of young folks today are not taught the responsibility of work. And then when they turn 18 years of age, it's a total shock to them. All of a sudden, when you have to flip the the switch and, and say, now it's time that you start working when you've not been taught that from an early age. I was taught when I was 10 years old that I should be looking for something to do that would help somebody else or that would be a benefit A lot of young folks are not taught that responsibility of work. And then when they turn 18, it's just total shock to them. I don't believe we're doing it. We're doing we are doing a disservice, I believe, to young folks if we don't teach them at an early age the responsibility of work. And it should be taught by example. I was taught by my parents and I was taught by my grandparents 
And I tell you, I, I was taught that I, we didn't have the concept of a 40-hour work week. It didn't exist in West Texas. My grandparents taught us that a work day was from sunup till sundown. Whatever time the sun came up, you were not expected to get out of bed. You were expected to be out of bed and ready for the day. And that went for all of us. I was taught that by my grandparents and then by my parents as well. And so when I turned 18, it wasn't a surprise. I knew that that was part of life and the responsibility since the fall of Adam, since the fall in the garden of Adam and Eve, that's when work began. And it wasn't a total shock or a total surprise. That's what he's saying right here about deacons. He says they need to know what the responsibilities are, but they also need to have some desire to do those things. And maybe even some evidence that they have been doing those things. Encouraging others, visiting the sick, doing some things like that. Well, let's finish this chapter. It, it, there's even, this is real good, but we'll, we've got five minutes and this one addresses the wives. So we're just going to touch on it. It's not very long right here, but it does, it does address the, the wives. It says, even so, their wives must be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things, faithful as a wife, faithful as a mother, faithful as a church member, faithful as a servant of God, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. Ruling their houses, ruling their children and their their own houses well. And what that means is that they don't have multiple wives is what he's referring to right here. That if there was a consideration that this strictly says the husband of one wife, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. He says, for they that have used the office of a deacon well. This is really good right here. You, you know, it's interesting that, that God inspired Paul to write so much about this. I mean, he could have just said, go ordain some deacons and here's how you do it. But he wrote to Paul and he said, here's some things that you need to consider. Because this is for the benefit of the church of Jesus Christ, for the church to prosper and do well and to continue on. For the, the pastor and the deacons and the church members to work together, to labor together. And he says, if the deacon have used the office of a deacon well, they purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, what that does not mean is it doesn't mean that you're going to have more stars in your crown. You ever heard folks refer to if you do something, a kind deed or gesture, they're just trying to be kind and compliment. And they'll say, well, well, you're going to have a lot of stars in your crown. That's not what he's saying right here. He says, if they have used this office well, you know, Brother Phil, the first one that comes to mind that used the office well, I, you know who I'm thinking about. Not the only one, Brother Oris Jackson. 
He used the office well. When he passed away, everybody here that knew Oris Jackson, they knew he, he was a man of integrity. They knew he was a man of conviction. They knew that he loved the Lord. They knew that he desired what was good for the church of Jesus Christ. They knew that he was a peacemaker. They knew that he wanted to encourage others in the Lord. And all of his church family knew that. But he was also a man of the community. He was in maybe Kiwanis or Rotary or whatever it was. Some of the men's uh, civic organizations. When we had his funeral, those men came. And the very same testimony that his church members knew, those people in those Entities bore the very same witness. He had a he had a TV repair shop, the oldest one in, in Bel Air on Main Street for 40 or 50 years. The community came. And so not only was the witness that he bore within the church the same as the witness he bore within the civic community, but all of his friends in the community came and bore the same witness. And then one more, he bore the same witness with his family. Am I right? Wasn't he known as a peacemaker among the Irwin family? I mean, big time. He was, he was, you would refer to him as a prince of a guy. He was a true example of a godly man. He bore witness in every one of those areas. And so when he would be out in the community, folks do him by that testimony. That's what Paul's saying right here. He says, you fulfill this role right here. And you do it the way that I've designed for you to do it. And he says, you're going to have a good witness. And you're going to bear witness to Jesus Christ and what he means to you and your life. Brother Jackson wasn't at all. He was a humble man. You might come up here on Monday morning. And he'd be pushing the vacuum cleaner in between these pews right here. Wasn't anything that Brother Jackson was too good to do. He'd clean the bathrooms if he needed to, if they needed to be cleaned. He wasn't too good to do any of that stuff. He'd do whatever needed to be done. He bore witness of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And in his life, he pointed others to Christ. Not to get eternal glory, but because Christ was dwelling in his heart. That's what Paul is saying right here. He says, you've purchased to yourself a good degree. He says, these things I write unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. Paul said, I'd like to come in person, but if I can't come in person, Timothy, I'm giving you the information that you need right here to go out and you teach others. To go out and you ordain ministers. To go out and you ordain deacons. And you encourage the churches with these offices that I've set up. He says, I'd like to come in person. But he says, if I tarry long, he says, Timothy, that you, that thou, mayest know how that thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. Paul is encouraging Timothy right here that not only does he know what's necessary in the church and beneficial for the church, but that he himself 
can encourage and share this with others. He says, the church is the pillar and ground. It's the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And then he just puts this last verse in and just sort of sums up the, uh, the need for the church. He says, and without controversy, he says, it's not even a topic of discussion. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Then he talks about how this takes place. God was manifest in the flesh through Jesus Christ. He was justified in the spirit, the Holy Spirit. He was seen of angels, Jesus Christ bearing witness in the flesh, preached unto the Gentiles. He's believed on in the world. And then he says, finally, he's received up into glory. He just wraps it up. And he says, the church is the dwelling place here below, the pillar and the ground of the truth. This is a, uh, these chapters encourage us in the role of pastor, teacher, and the deacons. That's not the only responsibilities within the church body. If we start creating offices within the church that God did not establish in the church, in what we believe the New Testament church is, it actually takes away from the church. I mean, it, really and truly, I, I love our singing. I love our singing when it's good. I love our singing when it's great. I love the slow songs, the fast songs. I, I love our hymn singing. It's a great blessing. And if the way it's designed, if, if we brought any instrument in, it'd take away from it. It's not going to add to it. I know there's some of you here that can play the instrument real well. But in our worship capacity, the way that God's designed it, if there's something that we were to bring in, it actually take away from our worship service. There was, I hadn't been pastoring here, but about a month or two, and there had been a wedding here at Mount Carmel. Uh, and, and I don't know whose wedding it was. I wasn't involved with the wedding at the time. But I walked in one day, and there was a piano right out here in the foyer. And I... My eyes got pretty big, and then you should have seen the deacons as they came in, and the other church members, and everybody's wondering, who brought this piano up here? Well, in the church of Jesus Christ, if we begin to, to come up with offices that are not within the church, it actually takes away from the church. One of the beauties of the church of Jesus Christ is, is the simplicity of the church and the way that God set it up. That's, 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 that's a beautiful aspect of the church of Jesus Christ. But another aspect of the church is that the gifts of ministering is not only for the pastor. It's not only for the deacons. It's especially for them, but it's for every one of us. I mentioned that Sister Dolan used to go and visit and encourage people. Thelma Mason. Anybody here remember Thelma Mason? Thelma Mason was, um, she was in her 90s. And Thelma Mason was going all over town visiting the sick. 
And she would load up in her car all the old widow women in her car. And she'd take them out to Horn and Horn to eat at the cafeteria up here. Or she'd take them out to eat lunch. And she was in her 90s when she was doing this. And her son decided, he said, I don't think it's safe for mom to be picking up all the old uh, widow women in the church. And so he traded her car for a, um, an Oldsmobile, a two-door Oldsmobile Cutlass. Souped up. And you'd see Sister Thelma trying to get those little old ladies in the back of that car. And one time she got them in there and she couldn't get them out. She was pulling and others were helping. And, and that was the goal of her son to keep her from going around picking everybody up. But she'd go around and she'd pick them up and you'd go visit folks. And Sister Thelma had already been there and encouraged folks. There's a role for us in the church. Even if we live to be up in our 90s, there's a role for us to minister within the church of Jesus Christ to encourage And if we're all working together, if the pastor and the deacons and the members and the sisters and the young people, if everybody is working together in the church of Jesus Christ, you're going to see the church prosper and grow. We've been through a really hard couple of years. Almost every church has. It's been really, really hard. Maybe not in your world. I remember John Karpinski telling me, he said, Brother Stephen, he says, we live right next to a playground and we homeschool and our world has just really not changed that much. Well, mine did a lot as much as it possibly could. It's been a really hard time. It's been hard among the churches. It's been hard with church members. But I believe that I remember preaching the sermon, and maybe I was preaching to myself more than anybody else, but I remember the title of the sermon was, There's a Better Day Coming. And I know that there's a better day coming eternally, and I believe that God may bless us with even better days while we're waiting for that eternal home.